0: Now, a certain magician named Thutis persuaded a great part of the people to follow him to the river Jordan, for he told them he was a prophet, and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and grant them safe passage over it. Many were deluded by his words. However, the governor sent horsemen and slew them. They took Thutis. And cut off his head. This is one of many passages from the first century historian Josephus. And this is one of many passages in which he describes a phenomenon that took place regularly between about 200 BC and AD 135 in Israel the phenomenon of someone claiming to be the Messiah, the long promised King of Israel. Sometimes these would be messiahs said they were prophets. Uh, sometimes they claim to work miracles like Thutis here. Usually they tried to stage some sort of revolt against Rome. And almost always they wound up getting themselves and their followers killed. And yet after the last one was dead, inevitably, time went by and another one popped up. Josephus says at one point, The country was again filled with impostors who deluded the multitude. Yet Governor Felix caught and put to death many of those imposters every day. This was a very common occurrence. And that shouldn't surprise us that there were so many people who claimed to be the Messiah in Israel 2,000 years ago. After all, Daniel chapter 9 specified that the Messiah would appear for about 490 years after a decree allowing Israel to return from exile and rebuild Jerusalem. And... About the right amount of time had passed. And at that time, there was great desperation in Israel for people seeking a Messiah because Rome was oppressing them. They were languishing. And so in that environment of misery and expectation, many volunteers stepped forward wanting to assume this title Messiah. But they weren't him. And their movements quickly collapsed and a lot of people died. But it was at this same time and place that Jesus appeared. And while today there are no remaining followers of Thutis, or any of the other or frauds from that time, there are millions of people today who confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the true Messiah sent by God. And today we're gonna to talk about one of the ways in which Jesus distinguished himself from the frauds of his day. One of the ways that he demonstrated incontrovertibly that he is the Messiah, And that's through his miracles. See, the Old Testament predicted many things about the Messiah. His ancestry, his hometown, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. But the Bible also said that one of the things that would characterize the coming of the Messiah would be amazing, miraculous wonders. So Isaiah 35 says, Then when the Messiah brings in what he's going to bring in, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Among other things, the Messiah was to usher in an era of healing and restoration, a new creation in which illnesses and disabilities that characterize this Fallen world will be reversed into eternal life and health for God's people. Now, I might say, well, we don't live there today. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He didn't bring that. Well, it's true Jesus hasn't brought that yet. We're not there yet, but in His first appearing, what Jesus did do is demonstrate that He had the authority, the power to bring about that sort of miraculous reversal, that sort of miraculous health and life that will characterize The Messianic Age, which he will inaugurate when he returns. And that's what we're going to see today. Jesus presents his Messianic credentials by demonstrating his absolute authority. And we're going to see this today in four points. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus has absolute authority to heal chronic, incurable health conditions. Number two, we'll see that Jesus has absolute authority over death and life. Number three, we'll see that Jesus has absolute authority over disability And number four, we're going to see Jesus is the absolutely unique Messiah. So let's start with our first point, in which we see that Jesus has authority over chronic, incurable health conditions. We pick up today where we left off last week. If you have a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus has just astonished the population of Capernaum by healing a paralyzed man. And he performed this miracle to authenticate a claim that he had made, that he was able to forgive sin. And immediately after, Jesus makes this claim, and then he authenticates the claim by healing the paralytic, then Jesus did something else astonishing. He led his entourage, his disciples, and this vast crowd of onlookers, down to the tax office. And there, Jesus summoned one of the most hated men in the town, Matthew the tax collector, to become his disciple. And not only did Matthew obey Jesus' call, Matthew went on to host a lavish feast at his home for Jesus and the disciples. But we saw last week that this feast was very controversial. It was controversial first because it offended the religious elite, the the Pharisees and the scribes. Some of whom were local and some of whom had come from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus because Jesus is getting so popular. But these religious elites have not come with open minds or hearts. They have come expecting Jesus to be one more false messiah. So they have come with skepticism, looking for a reason to reject him. And they first try to reject him when Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. They say, hey, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus does this miracle that should shut them up showing he has that kind of power, but that didn't change their minds. Instead, they lingered around, looking for another opportunity to dismiss Jesus. And they didn't have to wait long. Because when Jesus feasted at Matthew's house, they again denounced him for eating in the house of a sinner and eating with sinners. But we saw last week that many of the people Jesus was feasting with had already repented of their lives of sin and were now following Jesus. And those who were unconverted at this feast, Jesus says, I've come to evangelize them. But we saw that the Pharisees weren't the only folks who objected to this feast. John the Baptist's followers likewise objected, because this feast fell on a day that they thought should be set aside for fasting. And they said to Jesus, you're departing from Jewish custom by not fasting on this day. And Jesus told them, you're right, because he's not come to uphold the man-made traditions of Judaism. He has come to bring something entirely new, a new movement marked by joy, not sorrow. And fasting goes with sorrow. Now, while Jesus is having this second conversation, today's passage begins. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. And while he was saying these things to them, to John's disciples, behold, a ruler came in. Another uninvited guest enters Matthew's dining room. And we're told that he's a ruler. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, Mark and Luke tell us he was one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. So here we have another religious elite. Has he also come to denounce Jesus because of this feast? No. Why has he come? Verse 18 says, He knelt before Jesus, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now when you read Mark and Luke here, this is framed a bit differently. They tell us when Jairus first came to Jesus, the daughter has not yet died, but she was on the point of death, and that is different than what we find here in Matthew. What's going on here? Well, we've seen consistently throughout chapters 8 and 9, Matthew often abbreviates the accounts of Jesus' miracles from what we find in the other Gospels. Matthew gives us the cliff notes, and that's what he's doing here. He's getting right to the point of where this story is headed. Ultimately, Jesus is going to be asked to raise the dead. Now, Mark and Luke give us more detail, and they say, well, actually, when Jairus came initially, he just wanted Jesus to perform a healing. Now, notice, Jairus' request demonstrates great humility and faith. First, because Jairus is a religious elite. He knows what the other religious elites think about Jesus, but he doesn't care. He, even though they're going to scorn him for asking for Jesus' help, he comes anyways. And he begs on his knees. That's humility. And he comes in faith. Think about this. He leaves his dying daughter's bedside. You wouldn't do that for any old reason. You'd only get up from that kind of a situation if you really believed Jesus could help her. He has great confidence in Jesus' ability. And so he makes this request. In verse 19 we read, "...and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples." Mark tells us a bit more here. Mark adds that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. The crowd's been waiting to see what Jesus will do next. And as Jesus leaves Matthew's house, they reform and follow Jesus again. But someone in the crowd is about to complicate this situation. Verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. Now, Matthew doesn't say much about this woman. He focuses on her ailment. She has abnormal bleeding from her uterus, and she's been suffering from this this for 12 years. Mark tells us a little bit more in chapter 5 of his book. He says that she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So she's pretty desperate. Now, I called a doctor friend of mine to help me understand what condition this, this lady probably have, and he says that this woman is likely suffering from uterine fibroids, which is a condition that afflicts women in their 50s usually, and these fibroids, number one, would cause bleeding like this, and number two, they can persist and worsen over long periods of time without killing you within 12 years. Interestingly, he also told me that someone with this condition for this long would be severely anemic due to the loss of blood and would feel extreme physical weakness. And I bring this up because that makes what happens next quite remarkable. Mark 5 says, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd. Now, this crowd was dense. In fact, Luke tells us at this very point, the the crowd pressed around Jesus. Getting through this crowd would be extremely difficult. Remember a few weeks ago, the friends of the paralyzed man, they wanted to get to Jesus. They couldn't get through the crowd. The crowd was impenetrable. That's why they had to lower their friend in through the roof. But this woman, physically very weak and ill, is so determined to see Jesus, she fights her way through this dense crowd because she believes Jesus can help her even though nobody else has been able to. So she pushes through the crowd, Matthew says, and she came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Her belief is so intense, it borders on superstition. Because look, she's not interested in talking with Jesus. After all, that could prove humiliating. This crowd is there. Her neighbors are there. She might have to talk about her ailment. An ailment that Leviticus says would have made her ritually unclean these past 12 years. Probably doesn't want her community to know about that. She wants a private healing where nobody has to learn what she's been going through, in which she can get what she wants from Jesus and go on with her life without ever really having to address her problem. So she thinks, if I just touch Jesus' clothes, that's good enough. I'll probably get a benefit from that. And so she reaches out for a tassel on Jesus' clothing. Numbers 15 said that all Jews had to wear blue tassels on their garments as a reminder to obey God's law. And that's what she reaches for, one of these tassels, and she grabs it. Now, Jesus has been jostled by this crowd all day. Someone yanking a tassel on his coat probably would be one of the least noticeable points of contact he would have During this walk. And yet, as soon as she touches Jesus' garment, Luke 8 says, Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Something happened within Jesus that we can't understand but he is aware of this encounter that this woman was hoping he would remain oblivious to and jesus publicly calls it out now the disciples and crowd were of course clueless they don't know what's happened but this woman does and luke 8:47 says when the woman saw that she was not hidden she came trembling and falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him that's not what she wanted she wanted to remain anonymous she had taken what Jesus had not offered. She has tried to reap the benefits of Jesus without having a meaningful encounter with Him, and He isn't going to let that happen. So now she is exposed. And with everyone's eyes upon her, she acknowledges who she is and why she's done what she's done. What's going to happen? Is Jesus going to rebuke her? Is He going to undo her healing? Matthew 9.22 says, Jesus turned... And seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Jesus looks on her with compassion. He's not angry at her. Even though she was likely older than Jesus, he refers to her with this affectionate term. He calls her daughter. He encourages her, take heart. And he publicly commends her faith. it would have taken immense faith for someone in her condition to make this attempt to get to him and to believe that even just touching his clothes could help her. And Jesus says because of her faith, she has been healed, and immediately she's healed. And this is an amazing miracle. What should we take from this today? I'm going to talk about this woman's approach to Jesus at the end of our time, but here what I want you to see is Jesus has absolute authority over sickness and health. So far in this book, we've seen Jesus heal common ailments like fevers. We've seen him heal horrific ailments like leprosy. We've seen him heal matters that are beyond medicine, ancient and modern, like paralysis. And now we see him healing a chronic condition that was beyond the doctors of his day. And Jesus is the great physician and his power is unlimited in these matters. And I want you to see three important truths here. Number one, all healing ultimately comes from God. Psalm 41 says, The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. All healing ultimately is sourced in God. Now, God is a God of means. Right? He can heal in different ways. Sometimes He heals us using modern medicine because that's a common grace from God. Sometimes He uses our body's natural processes to heal us. That also is a common grace from God. Sometimes he may miraculously intervene in an illness. That happens sometimes. So, friends, when we get sick, we should seek medical attention because that's a good gift from God. But we must also pray because in the end, God is the source of all healing. And we should pray with faith, James chapter 1 tells us, because prayer without, wor- without faith is worthless. Now, understand, if just because we pray with faith, that doesn't mean we're guaranteed an answer. But if we hope to get an answer, faith is essential. And we see that in this passage, that this woman has great faith. So pray. Number two, Psalm 103 says, God heals all our diseases. This is a promise of healing for the believer, which has been secured by Jesus' death, according to Matthew chapter 8. But friends, that promise of healing is not for this world. Jesus' miracles are a preview of the glories of the future messianic age. He's giving us a glimpse of what will one day be universally true. But Jesus was not then launching the new creation. And so, believing friends, when we suffer today, we can be confident that one day we will be fully healed. And we may well experience that in this world. But we also may have to wait Until the new creation. Because in the new creation, one day, friends, death will be no more, Jesus says. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Number three. Jesus came the first time to solve our greatest problem, which is not physical sickness, but it's spiritual separation from God. Jesus' ability to heal physical maladies Shows it reflects, it authenticates his ability to forgive sin. We saw that in the incident with the paralytic. And we actually see that sort of in this same passage. Now, you may not pick up on it because the ESV doesn't translate this quite literally in verse 22. In verse 22, the ESV has Jesus saying, Your faith has made you well. Now, certainly she was made well. But most literally in Greek, what Jesus says here is, Your faith has saved you. From what? Well, her illness to be sure. But right on the heels of incidents depicting Jesus' ability to forgive sin and transform sinners into his people and give them righteousness, I think we should also understand that her faith here has resulted in her forgiveness. Because Jesus came the first time not to liberate Israel and launch the new creation. Jesus came the first time to save sinners by grace through faith. And so Jesus has mercy on this believing woman who was terribly afflicted. All right, now we come to our second point, in which we see that Jesus has absolute authority over life and death. Mark and Luke tell us that while Jesus is dealing with this lady, messengers have come from Jairus' house, and they bring grim news. They say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now imagine being Jairus. When you left your house, your daughter was clinging to life. You diligently searched for Jesus. You found him. You got him to come with you. Things looked like they were going to turn out quite well. And then there's this unexpected delay caused by this woman. And now Jesus isn't going to get there in time. Your daughter's dead, and you weren't even there when she died. That would be crushing, right? But Jesus intervenes before Jairus' mind runs away with him. Mark 5.36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And now Jairus' faith is truly tested. It was one thing to come to Jesus and say, please heal my daughter. Everyone in the community knew Jesus could heal. It's a different story if your daughter's dead. Believing that Jesus can fix that takes a whole other level of faith, does it not? But with Jesus' encouragement, Jairus still believes that Jesus can help his daughter. And that's why Matthew's able to abridge this story in the way he does, in which Jairus initially just says, my daughter's dead. Because in the end, that's what this story's about. In this ultimate moment, Jairus has the faith to ask Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead. So what happens? Matthew 9.23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, He saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. All right, so Jesus and his entourage come to Jairus' home. And Mark and Luke tell us Jesus goes inside with only three of his disciples. And what do they find? Flute players and noisy people. What's going on? This is the little girl's funeral. Okay, When someone died in first century Judaism, you didn't wait around for the undertakers. You buried them almost immediately. So the funeral's already begun. Now, in the ancient world, funerals were not like the, the somber affairs we have today. I mean, These were quite sad, but they weren't quiet events. In Judaism, it was customary. and In fact, the rabbi said it was required to hire flute players to play mournful music. And beyond that, it seems that this family has hired professional mourners. This was a custom in many parts of the ancient world among the rich. You would hire some people to come to your house when a loved one died, and they would loudly shriek and wail so that your neighbors would hear this and think, wow, that person who died was much loved. So Jesus comes into the house. The flutists are fluting. The mourners are shrieking. And Jesus is going to have none of this. Verse 24, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, these folks had done a lot of funerals. And every funeral they had done had one commonality. The person they were there for was dead, right? They weren't just sleeping. And when Jesus comes in the door and makes this authoritative pronouncement, oh, she's not dead, she's asleep, and they know he hasn't examined her, they think, what is this ridiculousness? They laugh at Jesus, but he isn't amused. He kicks them out. Now, again, here we see Jairus' faith, right? takes a lot of faith to say, hey, stop the funeral. Mourners, leave. She's not going to die today. And that's what he does. And once the scoffers have been removed, Jesus proceeds. Verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. Jesus was right all along. Not that she was asleep, alive and had been asleep the whole time, but... Her condition of being dead was as temporary as sleep. And by Jesus' merest touch and command, she awakens. Mark tells us more here. He says, taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talita kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And the witnesses were immediately overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. What a miracle. And I love the way this ends, right? Jesus is in such control over this situation. He knows what the little girl needs after she comes back to life. She needs a meal, right? But while Jesus is demonstrating some immense power here, notice that he's not looking to start a messianic uprising. He isn't Craving attention from the crowd. Instead, he tells the witnesses, you guys don't talk about this. And yet news of this miracle is destined to get out, even if everybody in that room obeys Jesus. Because eventually the little girl's going to go outside. And all those people who heard the mourners and the flutists, they're going to see she's alive, and they're going to know that's because Jesus had been in the house. And so we read Matthew 9.26 says, And the report of this went throughout all that district. Now what do we see here? Jesus has absolute power over life and death. Now, that's an amazing thought, right? Because throughout history, humanity has always conceived of death as this unbeatable adversary, right? You can delay death. You can avoid death. But someday your number's going to be up, right? Death wins in the end. But Jesus shows us death doesn't get the final word. There's someone who reigns over death. Now, that would not be a new idea for the people who encountered this miracle. Because in the Old Testament, God said that he was supreme over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, God says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Observant Jews like Hannah could pray in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord kills and brings to life. But even though people might have theoretically understood that God has authority over life and death, it would be totally different to see a miracle like this with your own eyes. This is beyond normal experience. This is beyond anything Jesus has done in, in any of these people seeing, right? To see a sick person healed, wow. To see a dead person revived, It's astonishing, but it happened. And here, once more, we see Jesus doing what the Old Testament says only God can do. Jesus exercises the prerogatives of God, and therefore he shows himself to be God in the flesh by giving life to the dead. And you might say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, there are prophets who perform miracles in which they bring the dead back to life, and that's true. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises the widow's son. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the Shunammite's son. And we don't read those accounts and say, well, Elijah's exercising the prerogatives of God. Elijah must be God in the flesh. Why is this different? Why can we say those were just men working the power of God? Why is Jesus doing something different here? Because in both of those other passages from the Old Testament, We're explicitly told that when Elijah and Elisha came face to face with the dead body, they prayed for the Lord to raise the dead. It was God who gave the order, and it happened. But that's not what we see in our passage, right? Jesus walks in the room, and he doesn't pray. He touches her. He says the word, and she lives. Jesus gives the command that in the Old Testament only God can give, and it is obeyed. So Jesus does what only God can do. And this is a powerful evidence of Jesus' deity. But friends, this is not only theologically significant. I think this is immensely personally encouraging. Is it not? Because death hangs over every one of our heads. We live in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's on a good day. Apart from pandemics and hurricanes and terrorism and crime waves. But friends, there is one who commands life and death. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus says in John 5, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Son gives life to whom he wills. He does what the Father does. He executes authority over life and death. And not only does Jesus wield power over death, but he gives people hope in the face of death. Those who hear Jesus' claims about himself and respond with repentant faith receive eternal life. Death will not be the last word for you if you trust Christ. Because a day is coming when Jesus will speak, just like he spoke to the little girl. And then not just one person, but everyone will rise who has died. And those who have trusted Christ will receive resurrection life in the new creation. And those who have not will receive eternal condemnation. And Jesus says later in John's gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Jesus alone is hope in the face of death. And he challenged his hearers then, and he challenges us today. Do we really believe this? The people on that occasion, they got to see Jesus give life to his friend Lazarus. But the ultimate evidence of Jesus' authority over life and death is not that he raised Jairus' daughter. It's not that he raised Lazarus, because eventually they died again, right? The ultimate proof of the totality of Jesus' authority over life and death is his own resurrection from the dead, in which Jesus not only returned to life, but his body was transformed into a resurrection body that was impervious to death, suffering, and sickness. Romans 6 says Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And friends, this is not a fairy tale. This isn't some myth we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good. Hundreds of people saw Jesus alive again after he died. They spoke with him. They touched him. They ate with him. Many of those who saw Jesus alive after he had died had been unbelievers. But when they saw him, they became his followers because they couldn't deny what they had seen. Friends, Jesus shows us. Total, ultimate victory over death is not only possible, it is inevitable for all those who trust him. Because just as Jesus has received a resurrection body, an unending life, all those who trust Jesus will likewise receive resurrection bodies and everlasting life. First John 3 says, When he appears, we will be like him. Jesus has victory over death, and he shares his victory with his people. And so, friends, on the basis of Jesus' gospel, his death and resurrection. We don't need to fear death because if you know Jesus, you belong to the one who is the master of death and the author of life, the one who truly declares in Revelation chapter 1, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has total authority over life and death. We come now to our third point, and here we see that Jesus has absolute authority over disability. Look at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him. Okay, so Jesus is again on the move, and we can assume the crowd is with him again. And that's how two blind men would know that Jesus was nearby and could follow him. They'd just have to follow the sound of the crowd. And as these blind men followed Jesus, they were crying aloud, "'Have mercy on us, Son of David!' Now that gets jesus attention because this title is really significant david was the greatest king in israel's history it was to david that god swore your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever david was to have an everlasting dynasty but at this point david's dynasty had not reigned in 600 years but many jews rightfully expected that his long-promised descendant, the Messiah, would soon emerge. And they thought when the Messiah came, he would give Israel independence and glory. Now, this expectation is certainly derived from the Bible. Isaiah 7 said that the house of David would see a child born of a virgin. Isaiah 9 said he would sit on the throne of David and establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. Micah 5 said that he would be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem and would shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. But passages like these caused the Israelites to overlook other things that the Old Testament also said the Messiah would do. He wouldn't just conquer evil governments. He would conquer sin and death. He would achieve victory by himself undergoing suffering and death. Israel missed that. They wanted a Messiah who would achieve military and political victory, like David did. A Messiah who could vanquish Rome. We find this expectation pretty clearly in an apocryphal book written about 100 years before Jesus was born called the Psalms of Solomon. And in this book, there is a prayer for God to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash all their substance with an iron rod. And in this prayer, how does the author see this coming about? He prays, raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over Israel. This term son of David in first century Israel was a title for the Messiah, and it was a politically charged term. It means, you're our rightful ruler. You're our king. You will overthrow the Romans. And that's how these men address Jesus. Were they wrong to use this term? No. Because we read in the very first verse of this book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Matthew then shows us Jesus is the long-promised descendant of David. But has Jesus come in his first advent to crush Rome? No. No. Now, in His second coming, He will indeed crush the rebellious nations. Revelation 19 says He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God. But in His first coming, Jesus has come not to vanquish political adversaries, but to vanquish greater spiritual adversaries like Satan and sin. And so, while this title can be applied to Jesus, its implications were a bit off for Jesus' mission which is, I think, why Jesus did not call himself the Son of David, but instead he used the more ambiguous term, the Son of Man. Because to stand up in the first century and say, I am the Son of David, is to invite immediate reprisals from Rome. And it's not time for that. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he has to proclaim and inaugurate the kingdom. He has to call and prepare the apostles. It's not yet time for him to be revealed as the Son of David. And so when these blind men call him by this term, he responds. Because they have grasped something nobody else has grasped. that's just a human in this book. That Jesus is the Messiah. Nobody's confessed that since John the Baptist. But these two blind men, who haven't actually seen any of Jesus' miracles, right? They've only heard about them. They're convinced. And so they call out to Jesus, have mercy on us. Cure our blindness. They've got faith. And so Jesus responds to that. But he isn't going to help them in public. He isn't going to openly acknowledge his title. So instead we read in verse 28, When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? You might wonder, why, do they, why, why would Jesus ask them, Do you believe I can do this? These guys were seeking a stupendous miracle. Nowhere in the entire Old Testament is a blind person ever healed. Nowhere. A few weeks ago, I said leprosy was only healed once. I was wrong. I forgot an instance. Leprosy is healed twice in the Old Testament, but blindness never. In fact, other than Jesus, nobody in the whole Bible ever heals blindness. So this is a huge ask. And Jesus tests their faith. And what happens? Verse 28, they said to him, Yes, Lord... Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, because they believed they were healed. But look at what Jesus says next, verse 30. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. Jesus orders them to remain silent. He didn't want them running around, saying, We found the military conqueror. We found the Son of David. But guess what happens? Verse 31. But they went away. And spread his fame through all the district. Now, I've heard people preach on this and they say, well, you know, when Jesus touches you, you can't help but talk about it. Okay, this is not a cute affirmation of Jesus. Okay, this is an act of disobedience. Jesus told them, don't talk about it, and what do they do? They talked about it. We saw a few weeks ago in chapter one, Jesus told the leper who he healed, don't talk about it. And when he did, it made Jesus' life more difficult. The crowd forced Jesus to sleep outside, away from the comfort of the cities. They took more of his time and energy. And now these guys are loose to go blab politically incendiary things about Jesus. This isn't going to make his ministry any easier. These men, who moments before have confessed Jesus as their rightful king and lord, before they get the healing, as soon as they get it, turn around and disobey him right away. And in that, they're a lot like us, right? We're quick to ask for Jesus' help. We're a lot slower to obey him. But even though he knows these men will disobey him, in his compassion, Jesus healed them anyway. But that's not all that he does. Look at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Again, the crowds are bringing people to Jesus. And here is a man who is afflicted with a physical disability. He can't speak. And he also has a terrible spiritual problem. He's oppressed by a demon. It's unclear if the demon is the reason he can't speak or if these are parallel situations. But in any event, this man desperately needs Jesus' help. And Jesus heals this man, both spiritually and physically. Verse 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And again, we see Jesus' total authority over the natural realm and the supernatural realm. And we talked about the supernatural realm a few weeks ago. So what I want us to focus on here is this. Jesus' authority over disability. Disability is one of the worst things in this fallen world. In my life, I've had two relatives who from very young ages were afflicted with terrible disabilities. And as brave and wonderful as one is and as one was, it's it's hard to see that, right? You know, the Bible tells us when God made this world, He made it good. But disability... And disease and disaster and death, these are the terrible consequences that have come upon the human race because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And while disability is a terrible thing in this life, there is hope because God declares a time is coming when disabled people who belong to him will be liberated from their hardship, when they will have more than just being able-bodied, when they will enjoy the transcendental freedom and liberation of resurrection existence in the new creation. We read earlier from Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the the mute tongue will sing for joy. God promises a time is coming when the awfulness of disability will be a thing of the past in the new creation. And again, we see Jesus is the one who has the authority to make that happen. In fact, once more here, we see that Jesus does what only the Old Testament says God can do. In the Old Testament, we read, Psalm 146, what we read in the call to worship, it is the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind. Nobody else does it. In Ezekiel 33, we read, The hand of the Lord had been upon me, so my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. The Old Testament says only God could heal blindness. Only God could heal muteness. And here we see Jesus with just a word and just a touch healing these terrible conditions, doing what the Old Testament says only God can do. Wielding the prerogatives of God, showing himself to be God in the flesh, showing himself to be the Messiah who will bring in the new creation and all of the the reversal and the glory and the transformation. He is the one. Who has power to heal permanent disability. Now we come to our last point, and here is the conclusion basically to chapters eight and nine. And in this we see that Jesus is the absolutely unique Messiah. Okay? So for two chapters now we've seen from Matthew these amazing demonstrations of Jesus' authority, right? He healed the leper and showed that he can cleanse what's unclean. He healed the centurion's son, which shows he can say a word and it's accomplished way far away. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And could heal her illness by just a touch. He stilled a storm with his own words. And showed he has power over the natural realm. He exorcised demons and so we see that he has power to command the supernatural realm. He healed the paralytic and showed he can forgive sins. He healed the woman with the bleeding disorder and shows he can heal chronic and incurable conditions. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and shows he's got power over death and life. He healed the blind man and the mute man and shows he's the one who will bring in the messianic age. Jesus, again and again, ten times in these chapters, demonstrates his absolute authority over everything. He does what the Old Testament says only God can do. And you know, think about this. If Jesus went around saying, I do what God can do, how would God respond to that if that was false? God would destroy him for that, right? Instead, what does God do? He backs Jesus up again and again, empowering more and more authenticating miracles. And so Jesus has astonished the people of Galilee. Look at verse 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. There had been great religious teachers before. There had been Messianic claimants before. There had been real prophets who worked real miracles before. But nothing like this. Jesus stands alone. Jesus has demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt who he is. And the crowd loves it. They don't understand it. They should have. They'd been to the synagogue. They'd heard the prophecies read. But they don't make the connection. To them, Jesus is a wonder worker who can do anything, who can solve my problems. And so they love him because they think they can make Jesus into their servant. But who is it that should have helped the crowds to understand who Jesus was? Who is it that should have helped them draw the connections? Who is it that should have taught them how to rightly respond to Jesus? The religious elites, right? The people who studied the Bible for a living. But what was their response to Jesus? Look at verse 34. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. After hearing Jesus teach, after seeing Jesus perform sign after sign, that the Bible said would characterize the Messiah, they're unmoved. So even though Jesus, like he will say in chapter 11, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the signs that the Bible said would characterize the Messiah are here, even though that's the case, they won't acknowledge him. Why not? Well, often when people talk about the Pharisees' hard-heartedness, we talk about it in terms of power. And Jesus jeopardized their position. And that's true. After all, Jesus has totally exposed these guys as hypocrites throughout this book up to this point. But I think more than that, these religious elites are playing a very cynical and faithless game. Rome is in charge. And Rome let the Jews have their traditions. But Rome expected that the religious elites would maintain order. Would-be messiahs could pop up here and there, and they did. And they had small followings and could easily be crushed. And they remained small and easy to crush because the religious elites never backed them. Because the religious elites knew if they put their imprimatur, their seal of approval, on a messianic claimant, it would cause trouble. It would jeopardize the nation. That's what the high priests say in John chapter 11. What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's better that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. And I think in the end, that's what these guys are about. They are gatekeepers for a rigged game. They were to recognize the Messiah as the leaders of the nation of Israel. And they have made a political calculation that it's safest to say no one can ever fit the bill. Because if we recognize the Messiah, we court national disaster. And why did they believe that? Because in their hearts they thought even if the real Messiah showed up, he'd lose. They thought that Rome could beat God. These men are cynical unbelievers. And so to them, Jesus could perform every miracle in the book. And guess what friends, John at the end of his gospel says he did. He performed more than could even be written in the books, John says. doesn't matter. Every proof Jesus presents just makes their task more difficult. They have to find ways to reject him. And so the rules of their game will never let them recognize Jesus. But what are they to do about his miracles? Jesus performs these wonders. The crowd loves him. They have to get rid of the problem. What will they do? Well, they can't claim the miracles are false. Because the miracles were real they couldn't be disproved here were the healed people even jesus enemies admitted his miracles were authentic in fact the talmud which records the traditions of the early rabbis speaks about jesus on many occasions and twice it explicitly calls jesus not a fraud but a sorcerer this reflects the recollections of the very people who stood there opposing jesus they conceded his powers were real but they couldn't admit that they came from god so instead, they invented this terrible blasphemy. They said Jesus is empowered by Satan. Now, we're going to talk about that horrific charge in a few weeks. And when Jesus talks about that, he lays down one of the most terrifying warnings in the whole Bible. But for now, it's enough to see that after hardening their hearts again and again towards Jesus, they have become, cl- they become blind to what should have been crystal clear. And instead of honoring Jesus, they solidify themselves in opposition to him. And this is where I want to end today. This is an invitation for us to think about our own response to Jesus. Friends, let's be honest. There's no question about who Jesus is. His enemies admit the power of his miracles. Unbelievers saw him raised from the dead and became his followers. And they went to deaths of martyrdom because they could not deny what they had seen. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the long-promised Messiah. Oh, you may pretend that you have some clever intellectual argument against all of that. But the historical record is against you. It's real. And in your heart, you know it is. But the real question is, what are you going to do with it? Maybe today we're like the Pharisees. We see the truth about Jesus and we hate it. Because you don't want a Lord who tells you how to live. You don't want somebody who's going to hold you to account. You want to serve yourself. So you wish Jesus would just go away. And you lie to yourself Accepting the most implausible nonsense, existence spontaneously arose from nothingness. Life spontaneously arose from non-life and humanity is the result of a bunch of happy accidents and Jesus is a myth so I can do whatever I want or whatever. It's nonsense and you know it is. So the only salient question is this, will you humble yourself before Jesus or will you maintain this folly and damn yourself? Cast yourself on Jesus' mercy. Believe He died in your place and suffered the penalty for your sin. Call out to Him for help and you will find in His compassion He is quick and gracious to forgive. Maybe today we're like the woman with the bleeding disorder. We want Jesus' benefits, but we want to be able to go on with our own life and never be exposed. We want to hide in the background and get the goodies and go about our life without ever having to come clean to Jesus. We want salvation, but we don't want repentance. Friends, we've seen Jesus isn't going to let us get away with that. You can't creep around and quickly snag a get-out-of-hell-free card without having to come face-to-face with Jesus and do business with him. If that's you this morning, confess your sins to Jesus. He knows it's hard to repent. He'll do for you what he did for this woman. He will give you courage and strength and empowerment for new life. Maybe today we're like the blind men in our passage. We're quick to call Jesus Lord when we want his help, but we don't want his lordship when things are going well. If that's you today, recognize the falsity and hypocrisy of this kind of lifestyle. Recognize Jesus' amazing grace to put up with us, even though we fall into this pattern so quickly. Praise Him for being such a faithful friend to us when we are so faithless to Him. And instead, friends, let us hear the words that Jesus said to Jairus. Don't fear, only believe. And that's the pattern that connects all these people in this passage. They all had faith in various measures, right? Now what did we see again and again? Jesus responded to their faith with great grace. Because Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. Four times the Bible says the righteous will live by faith. And so today, friends, if you know Christ, have confidence. You can trust Him with all your fears and all your failures and all your problems because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He is the one who will slay death. He is the one who will remake this fallen world. He is the one who will give us everlasting life. So today, may we honor Jesus, may we worship Jesus, and may we be confident in Jesus, our great God and Savior. Let's pray.